Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Zipcar. Earn $25 of free driving credit at joinzipcar.com slash weekend. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're chatting about the constant pull between two design philosophies, the appeal of the well-designed linear narrative game and the freedom of an open sandbox. So Rob, I know you're playing something that inspired this topic, so tell me about it. Yeah, I think, um, the ga- interestingly, the game I'm playing, I-, I would say maybe isn't super narrative, but is a- it is a scenario, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm playing Hearts of Iron 4, which is the paradox uh, grand strategy game about World War II. Excellent. And, you know, I found myself, you know, chatting with another friend of mine who's also really into Paradox games, and he asked me how it was. And the first thing I said was sort of like to poo-poo it, right? I was like, (laughs) well, you're not going to get as much out of it as like EU4, right? Because like there's not as much freedom, like that you can can only do so much in this game. And it, it dawned on me the moment I said it, I've been like really enjoying this game. My first instinct was because of expectations... Uh, from other games from the studio was was sort of to denigrate it, right? It was like, well, no, it's not. It's not as big. It's not as it's not as open, and and by, somehow by implication, it's not as good or not as enjoyable as as games like EU Four or Crusader Kings. And it got me thinking about like how maybe that's maybe we make too much of that distinction, right? Because like Hearts of Iron Four. Is it is a scenario like certain things are probably going to happen again and again, uh, or with, with slight variations. But but generally, like even within the constraints of that scenario, it can play out a ton of different ways, and that's why it's really fun to actually revisit that scenario, right? Yeah. And it, it sort of got me thinking about like how actually, if you set up a a, a good scenario, a good a, a good moment, a good story, that can be so much more worth revisiting than something that's theoretically open-ended, but because it has to sort of accommodate all these different things the player can do, I, I think tends toward sameness, right? And I, I feel like I feel like that's the tug of war I see, the, the, the exchange I, I see being made between more open-ended game designs and more linear narrative uh, scenario based ones and that seems like in my head i think that kind of holds true for for every genre and yeah. in the context of hearts of iron i was just thinking like i think in general maybe we overrate the importance of call it replayability or whatever you want to call it but we overrate the the importance of like um like infinite possibilities sure and underrate a set of really interesting possibilities. I think that's a kind of a perfect way of putting it right there. It, it's sort of the argument about freedom, right? The more freedom you have, the less <laughs> potentially interesting the things that you'll do might be. You know, if I can do an absolute infinite amount of things, I could get creative about it. I could maybe make a game for myself within that, you know, and that could be interesting potentially, mm-hmm. but more likely I'm just going to, run around like an angry toddler and cause chaos. And like, that's fun for a while. Sure. But I'm sort of thinking of, of like the things that are very interesting about like a good open world game, like a, a Grand Theft Auto. They're almost always 
you know, people sort of poo-poo the, or at least a lot of people that I know kind of think that the the story itself is actually pretty childish and not super interesting and not not the best thing necessarily. You know, it's cinematic in its own way and it has, you know, some merits, but it's not the reason anybody plays those games. They play them for all the sort of ridiculous, kind of some of the exploration, but more the ridiculous things that you're allowed to do, that sort of freedom of it. Um, but if you break down what you do with that freedom, it usually ends up being like, I beat a bunch of people up or or just drive up a mountain or just it's kind of like this random set of things to do as opposed to like here are the 10 coolest and most interesting things that you can interact with and see what happens and see what those possibilities are versus exactly what you're saying you know 10,000 mundane things <laughs> that you could do basically and I don't know I don't know where I fall on that spectrum because <laughs> Take a drink. I've been playing Witcher 3 again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know. And here's the funny thing that I realized. So I was up playing it until 4 in the morning last night. And, you know, like I said, I had picked it up again just to kind of tool around a little bit. Uh, but I didn't really do much the last sort of the last time I played it. Last night, I really dug in and played for, you know, four and a half hours or so, five hours, whatever, while the DLC was downloading Blood and Wine, mm -hmm. which... I didn't even get to Blood and Wine because I realized I'm only level 26 in this game. I have put more than 120 hours, like at least, into The Witcher 3. And I have only probably played, I, I just only realized it last night, that I've only probably played something like halfway, maybe a little more than halfway through the main story content. And I have just been, for so many hours, dozens and dozens of hours, just exploring the land and going to every, you know, question mark in Skellige, which there are hundreds, and I can't even believe I'm trying to do this. And I'm only level 26, and the, the DLC recommends level 34. Now, I'm not actually going to wait until I'm all the way to 34. I'll probably go into it once I'm 30 or so. But I'm just kind of like, wow, I cannot believe how much time I've spent in this game, and I don't feel like I'm very far into the, you know, quote, game of it, you know, the actual sort of meat of the game. I've just, I've done every monster contract. I'm looking around the world to do every random quest. I have like, I, I don't even know how many dozen potions. I have like, I've like leveled out the entire sort of potion and alchemy portion of the game. Oh, wow. So I could probably beat anything at any point because I'm so ridiculously overpowered, even though I'm under leveled. And it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but even within that, even within The Witcher, the quests that you can do and the sort of openness of the world, those are all interesting things. Those are all scenarios. Those are all sort of set up the way you're saying. Like, it's not necessarily like the main story content, but even even the sort of random things along the side of the road all have kind of a scenario to them and kind of a flow to them. They're not just sort of random things that happen. You know, last night I was going to, you know, just find a random question mark on the map, and it was a cyclops who was guarding you know, some treasure. And there was all this kind of like little tiny story bits, you know, sort of just in the environment design. Like this Cyclops had definitely decided that like this treasure was his. This was his little nook. He was going to hang out there. Like just everything about it speaks to sort of that level of, yeah, there's something going on here. Everything is kind of intentional and it was designed and it was actually made with some kind of love and care and is not just the result of of sort of a whole bunch of systems interacting which i think is cool and maybe better you know it's that that game is just an interesting case right because i, yeah. I feel like it's the best of both worlds case for at least someone like me yeah. uh because i think it gives you 
the feeling that the world is open and is there to explore, but then it's full of stuff. And I think where a lot of open-ended games tend to fall down for me a little bit is the fact that the stuff that's out there isn't that interesting, right? So, like, compare this to uh, something that was actually way, like, was actually not an open game at all, but it, it just wore the skin of an open game uh, somewhat disastrously, L.A. Noir. Yes. Uh, where ultimately, L.A. Noir was basically a really old-fashioned adventure game. Yeah. Uh, like, like super old-fashioned. But, uh, I guess because it was a because <laughs> it was a rock star game or or something like it was just this this like insanely detailed fanatical recreation of uh of nineteen forties L A post war Los Angeles, but there was nothing there. There was nothing in that world. And the only thing they could give you to do was go bust up like random crimes, uh, and most of which made continue to deepen my suspicion that you were a terrible police officer. Yes, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing was, so, like, you, you had this open space, but the world was completely lifeless. And that's why, like, Kirk Hamilton wrote the best thing about uh, L.A. Noir, right? Which is that the way that game is constructed turns the entire thing into this ghastly, solipsistic dream sequence by the detective. Yes. Uh, because you were the only person in that entire world that matters. Uh, you're the only person with any interior life. And that ends up making that entire game feel like one of the most lonely uh, increasingly troubling experiences, uh, just just as you begin to play it, Sorry. and y you feel like you're on the Truman Show. Whereas I think The Witcher, and, and the interesting thing is, The Witcher I think was always always like this, even from the first, uh, sure. even from the first game when their tools are really bad. Uh, they like it, like dude, play The Witcher one. It was a seriously, <laughs> it's a seriously janktastic game, uh, but. Even back then, they were trying to create little details that suggested characters had life, routine, right? Yeah. Like, sun, sun would rise, people would go do their chores, they would break for lunch. Like, there were all these little routines. And now in The Witcher 3, they've sort of added to that by not only is there just a lot more, like, ambient dialogue, but as you journey the world, you will find so many of these little quests and these little things happening. That it successfully creates the illusion that there is all this activity in the world, right? Now, it is an illusion because yes. it doesn't happen unless you're there to see it. <laughs> but that doesn't matter and you don't care because the, the point is that you do see it, right? To create a, a system that like randomly generates that stuff um is is like prohibitively difficult, impossible. Uh like you can't you can't like handcraft all this stuff. And and so I think like the Witcher Three, I think, it works for us as as an open world game because it's it's actually not nearly as open world as it as it appears to be, right? It just sort yeah. of it's, it sort of wears the form. Uh, where the uh, the uh, the other thing that I, I want to get into a little bit yeah. is <sighs> I feel like. I've probably talked about this on the show before, but there's a desire for infinite fun. Yes. Infinite, like that that you can that you can play a game and the fun need never end. It's 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 like it's like one of those like awful fairy stories, right? Where like the children go to the land where everything can be happy and then they like age a thousand years or something and like everyone's yeah. dead. Yeah. Uh like I think this is a really powerful fantasy for uh, for for games, right? That you can that this one game you can play. There's so much stuff to do in it uh, that you will never hit a moment 
where you'll be bored or done with it, or there won't there there won't be anything new left to see. That it can just be this this endlessly entertaining sandbox, right? That's that's the whole point. Is that you set and you can you can self entertain uh, with a game, and I think that th- that can be really powerful if there's fun, cool systems to support it, right? Like I think the reason. Far Cry 2 ended up being like the official podcast of the Idle Thumbs, the, the, official, the official show of the Idle Thumbs podcast network. Yeah. Is that, well. The same way Witcher 3 is for us, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that it, that it, it created, within the simple interactions of like fight these dudes, shoot these guys, set fire to that stuff, so many things could happen. And there were so many ways you could orchestrate that chaos uh, that it was worth revisiting again and again because even the mundane sort of remained fascinating. But I think most open world games don't quite pull that off. And you end up with a... You get a lot of territory, but a lot of it's pretty damn empty. And that tends to leave me pretty cold. I feel like the best way to describe sort of the the general feeling that the, it is sort of a pejorative, but it feels like, a, you know, those little busy books for babies, mm-hmm. they can touch the Velcro, they can touch the little textures. And it feels like that's what a lot of open world games kind of are. They're busy books yes. for adults. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, just, just stimulate this part of my brain, just stimulate this part of my brain, just stimulate this part of my brain, you know, just sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm exploring. I'm not really exploring, but I'm kind of exploring this thing. And that's so what it feels like. And I, and I don't want to demean anyone's work by saying that and say that, like, oh, you, you've just made a piece of trash for, you know, garbage humans. You know, certainly there's a, there's a level of craft that goes into, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a level of craft that goes into Far Cry 4. And I enjoyed Far Cry 4, you know, things like that. But the it really that, feels the like that that's what you went there doing. definitely means you don't think it was a piece of trash for garbage <laughs> humans. Let's be clear. <laughs> I'm just Far Cry saying. 4, not trash for garbage humans. <laughs> I just, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, that's what a lot of that feels like. Whereas, you know, if you have something that feels a little bit more meaningful, like the stories that I get from playing The Witcher 3, even if I'm not really telling anybody about these stories, in which, of course, I am because I'm on a podcast. But, you know, for your average player, it feels meaningful. And I feel like that's the sort of main thing here. Does does do, do your interactions feel meaningful? Do the experiences yes. you have feel meaningful, or do they feel like busy work for your brain because you're not doing anything else for two hours I mean, or this whatever is, it is? This is why we're still talking about the original Deus Ex twenty years later. Yes, right. Is totally. That, is that if you if you go back and look at that game, it's actually not that big. It's it's really not. But there's yeah. so many different ways that things can play out. And so, like, those interactions that make you feel like there's this world out there are actually few and far between. But I'm not going to forget the fact that I had a troubled family living in my neighborhood, right? And I actually ended up intervening in this, like, fraught relationship between this uh, sort of, you know, this alcoholic father and his, uh, like, runaway daughter. And I actually intervened in that situation, and for a time I thought I'd made it worse, and then maybe in the end I'd made it better. But but the thing is, I haven't forgotten that. And it gave me the sense, within the really limited like constraints of the two blocks of Hell's Kitchen, the <laughs> Deus Ex model, it gave me the sense that there was like all this life and story happening, and that I could be a part of it, or I could choose to stay out of it. But like, it gave me the sense that like 
there was something here, right? That there was something like real there. There were connections to be made. And I don't get that feeling from any number of, uh, I think Ubisoft open world games, I think are uniquely uh, prone to this, right? Uh, like <laughs> sure. those, those feel like, um, yeah, like, like busy books for, for adults or um, uh, like they, they, they're, they're all facade. Uh, for yes. Me. Yeah. And and so I I never feel like I have the potential for those connections. And and ultimately, what I'm starting to sort of I think one reason I brought this up is that whether or not we use that word, I, I feel like a lot of times we end up paying uh, a little too much uh, homage to the concept of replayability. Right sure, or or sure. expansive possibility, and I think what tends to just get underrated is that a handful of really good interactions will keep. Well, not only will they stay stay with you, but you'll keep coming back to them. Yeah. And so that game that you know you can finish in twelve hours is something you end up playing for fifty. Right, like yes. I just replayed the Banner Saga. Oh, and yeah, there's all yeah. those little choices. I'm, I'm I'm about to start on, on Banner Saga too. I'm really excited, but there's all these little choices you can make in the original Banner Saga. Game isn't that long, but I finished it and I was like, oh man, that didn't play out that much like the other one. There were all these interesting new conversations and and relationships I'd had. I want to play it again. Yeah, and I got to like, and in the context of Hearts of Iron, I was thinking about this where it was like. It's too easy to like compare a game like that to it's vastly more like open ended peers sure. and then say, well, you're not going to get as much, you're not going to get as much out of it. <laughs> and and I, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's justifiable. And yet I, I had this like instinct to say, you know, I had this instinct to hedge <laughs> myself on, yeah. on that front. And I, and, and I, and I think, I don't think I'm alone on that. Yeah, and I think it's probably misguided uh, in the end. That makes a lot of sense. I'm actually thinking now about games that are very deliberately very small, uh, but all but feel big, and they feel like there's a lot going on. And I'm thinking of uh, Kitty Horror Shows games. Uh, we've we've discussed a couple of them before on the podcast, but uh, she always makes games that are. Sort of uh, semi-horror, but also just just full of exploration. They are, you know, technically walking simulators, puzzle boxes, whatever term we settle on. Um, but they feel like there's so much more going on. Just using the simplest elements and simple art and, you know, just very simple sort of landscapes that sort of belie all this weird story. And, you know, there might be some audio logs or there might be some, you know, some bits of text. But they always sort of suggest those meaningful sort of events and those meaningful interactions. And I, I'm, I'll never forget playing these kinds of games, like anatomy, where you, you all you do is explore a house, but it changes subtly kind of every time. You get a little bit more kind of every time. There's a game uh, that I'll, I'll put in the description because I, I am failing uh, to, to remember the name of it, but you're just exploring this desert landscape and it's telling the story of like a people and, and what had happened to them there. And it's... Just using the simplest little elements and just the way it's constructed creates that 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 facade of meaning without looking like a facade or feeling like a facade. And it's and it's weird because you know we're talking about like 
the Ubisoft open world game only being facade. And it's very, it's sort of very obvious to you as a player that it's all facade. Like, oh, I know I'm only going to talk to this character because they're a quest giver. I know I'm only going to do this because it'll let me race or kill boars or, or whatever else. But in a game like uh, Kitty Horror Show games, y- you, I don't know, I, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just the sort of person who uh, enjoys this sort of thing, but you feel like you're really there and you're really exploring and that facade works for you. And I guess it's it's one of those things where it's a conversation between the player and the creator and, and sort of the spaces they've created. But man, it just gets me and I and I love it. And I'll and I'll just take those memories with me and they they feel meaningful. And I guess that's the maybe if there's any one core to all of this, it's that those sort of meaningful interactions or interactions that feel meaningful to you as a player are what really matters the most, at least to me and at least with my play style. You know, as you were saying that, I got to thinking about, um, I got to thinking about the end of the, uh, the, the, the first link later, uh, before movie, uh, the the relationship trilogy, the, um, before, before sunrise. Yeah. And I got to thinking about how the end of that movie is a series of cuts to the locations where the two characters have been talking all night. And it's a series of cuts to these places as the sun comes up over over Vienna. And it's a really powerful ending to the film because all these places that it seemed romantic, so romantic and like full of life and possibility uh, are, are sort of, it's the morning light, it's sort of the cold light of day, but also they're empty. Yeah. Uh, and the characters we spent the movie with are, are gone. And immediately you're, you feel this like keen sense of loss that all these places are uh, like sort of barren and and bereft and I, I like hearing you talk about that just got me thinking about like I think a lot of times games are about exploration of space in in one form or another yeah um but that space has to be like imbued with yes. with something and I I feel I I feel like sort of what you're talking about is that that difference right between like there are some games that give you those those places when the characters are there and they're talking and they're interacting and it feels like there's life and possibility and excitement there. Yeah. And then there's other games that just give you the space. And they give you the space for that place, right? I yeah. guess is the way I'd put it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, I like that. There's, awesome. an, there's yeah. an entire other conversation, but we'll have for another day about the degree to which we're also talking about like open world uh, versus narrative. Because there's the other thing we haven't really considered, which is um, got like, I'm not even sure the right word to use for it. I guess the like the genre is imperfectly called immersive sims, but like I'm thinking right. of specifically Dishonored and the way those, those levels are sort of set up like, you know, almost like clocks. Right. And if you adjust one thing, a bunch of other things will adjust and how you can create those like Rube Goldbergian systems to suggest, uh, to, to suggest like greater possibility and freedom uh, within a closed system, uh, which I feel is like, which is like a third way. I yes. think, uh, but it's but it's an entire other uh, other topic. Um, by the way, I just this is a total tangent. But you're mentioning no, free will. Good. You're mentioning yeah. free will, yeah. uh, and I just had the dumbest experience this morning. I just have to share it. <laughs> Please do. So the other week I watched Sicario, right? Yes. And I was like, damn, I like Emily Blunt. She's awesome. Hell yeah. Which is how I ended up getting the adjustment bureau. 
Oh, man. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, it's a thriller. Like, Matt Damon, uh, Emily Blunt. Like, he's on the run from this, like, mysterious group of, like, uh, puppet masters in the, in the shadows who are, like, running his life. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> have you seen this movie? Yes, I have. Yeah. So, I guess what had been, what, what I missed from, from all the trailers, from the trailers <laughs> and the, and the, and the promotional art for this movie and all this stuff is the fact that it's actually a really straight lace romance. Yep. Like, and, and there is a greater than, there's a greater than even chance that it's a romance involving angels. Yep. And so I'm sitting there watching the first, the first part of the movie, like there's this, there's the hint of political intrigue. Like, why is this guy got like, you know, who's looking after this guy's career? Like, why has he got to become the next senator from New York? Like what, you know, why is Matt Damon important? Like who are these people who are sort of swirling around him? This is fascinating. And then like, I'm watching the movie and increasingly it's starting to seem like somebody slammed together uh John Cusack's serendipity. Oh my with, god. Yeah. Uh, with with the born identity. Like that's literally what this movie is. <laughs> it's just like slammed together. And at the one point this character shows up and he starts going on about like free will, right? Like you can't be with the one you love because um look we gave you free will and you used it to have World War II. So no more free will. You have to stick with the plan. And even though it feels like you're really supposed to be with this person, we've decided not, you, you can't do that. And I don't think I've ever been so flabbergasted in the middle of a movie. <laughs> so like that, there's that moment where it's like literally like halfway through the movie where I start to realize like, oh wait, this is what this movie's about. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's just the it's just the most random damn thing because it was like the movie's trying to be like make the serious statement about the nature of free will and, and like you know to to what degree uh, we have it or don't blah 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 what, how much of our lives are based on like contingency and uh, chance and then it's exploring all of that through this really conventional like these two characters just have this magic chemistry and they just have to be together you guys i feel like i could be wrong always but it just feels like that was like a boardroom decision like well this won't play you know your sci-fi movie is not going to play without this romance you have two hot leads I mean, they might not have had the leads at the boardroom point, but it just, it feels like one of those decisions that's just like, ah, god damn it. <laughs> yeah, because the weird thing is the way the movie opens, uh, the way it's shot pretty much throughout, uh, I mean, the movie looks like freaking Michael Clayton, uh, yeah. which is one of my favorite uh, movies. Like, it looks like this it's really intense. serious, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of the ser- serious, foreboding, like, palette, and it feels like a thriller. Right up until you realize the thing they're running from is the possibility they won't end up together and 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 be in love forever. Right. Uh, which, yeah, it was it was super it was super weird though. And then to have that like random, um, that 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 random introduction of like, well, this is this is also about free will makes you think, doesn't it? Ugh. Uh. So yeah, I like I just I just bring that up because you you mentioned the whole like free will and. Uh, and and possibilities and, and stuff like that and what what a bizarre little movie uh, yeah. that that turned out to be yeah. uh, and I didn't want to talk about weekend endorsements because I don't endorse it yeah. uh, it was it was weirdly <laughs> compelling but it was not at any moment 
there's not any moment something I'd say was like really good. Yeah, I agree with that assessment 100%. I saw it a few years ago because uh, my ex at the time was not into sci-fi and went to, we had a little video store that we used to live right near, an actual video store, like you go and rent DVDs. And this is not that long ago, so it felt quaint even at the time. But she went and she went to the clerk and was like, I don't really like sci-fi and my girlfriend does. What would you recommend? And that was like the thing they gave her, which... That's not a bad recommendation. It's not. It's really not. It kind of makes me chuckle. Like, oh, they, you know, that's the power of the video store. They actually had some people who knew what they were talking about. Yeah, and actually, it's kind of what the movie is. Is like It's (laughs) trying to, like, it's trying to smuggle a romance under, like, in, it's, it's, it's like, it's like somebody wearing a trench coat. It's like a bunch of kids stacked on top of each other. It really is. Like, it's like, it literally, like, yeah, this is a, this is a pretty serious, like, Philip K. Dick, like, adaptation. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's definitely this really scary, intense, uh, paranoid thriller. Definitely that's what you're getting when you watch this movie. <laughs> yep. Kind of, uh, kind of a perfect description. There's, like, there's, like, literally a scene where these, these two, Characters, and they're all wearing. They're all wearing. They're, it's basically the cast of Mad Men. Oh uh, like God! The, the Justin right. Bureau is led <laughs> by John Slattery, and so like all the angels are like dressed in like nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, like three piece suits, and oh, wear God. like fedoras and shit. The but men in the, black. these two characters are standing there with this little um, this little magic moleskin, <laughs> this little magic moleskin <laughs> with all the timelines drawn out on them. The Harry and, Potter book, yeah. Yeah, and the guys like, <laughs> and, and 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 the assistant to John Slattery is like. If if he sees her dance, we've lost him. This is going to be out of control. <laughs> and I was like, what's going to happen if he sees her dance? No, it turns out he, his heart would just, like, swell, like the Grinches, when he saw her dance. Yeah. Like, yeah, these guys, like, <laughs> oh, no. It's 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 so weird. It's, it's he like, can't watch the dance. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's just helpless before the power of her dance. And <laughs> they were like, well, this is this is changing the universe now. In a, uh, in a really cynical way, it's like, why do, how do we make this nerd movie for girls? Like, that somebody kind of said that, you know, like, well, this, this nerdy PK dick movie for stereotypical romance loving women, the women folk, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. That's yeah, and, and, sort of and, what it feels like. And, and the nerdy boyfriends <laughs> will no, have no idea what hit them until it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt. Like, you know, the, yep. the, the, I think it was actually at that moment where, where he was like, you know, if you, if you guys stay together, she'll never become the greatest dancer in the world. Uh, so if you really love her, you'll walk away. And I was sitting there, I was like, wait, are we ever going to get back to the politics? <laughs> no? Okay, I guess. What about I, the fate of the world? Yeah. What about that? I liked yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess this is the movie I'm watching now, uh, I, which still kind of works because Matt Damon and Emily Blunt are like you know rolled eighteen charisma. So oh okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> By the way, the Kitty Horror Show game is called Cheerza. Found that one while we were talking about Emily Blunt and Matt Damon. Made Good me, work. Made me happy. Did a little sleuthing right there. Fate of the world, right there. <laughs> right. All right. So after that tangent, we should probably open up the, uh, the correspondence. <laughs> That sounds good. Let's uh, let's have a word from our sponsors and go right to our mailbox. Hey, Rob, why are you looking so down today? Well, Danielle, it's because a couple weeks ago I spent a lot of money on fresh new tires for my car, and I was feeling pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. And then this week 
I think one of my neighbors decided to slash those tires. Oh my god! My girlfriend went out to, went out to her car and discovered that uh, a couple of the tires were flat because apparently somebody like shoved a screwdriver. Uh, through them. Holy God. But it was ironic because many listeners anticipated exactly where this was going. <laughs> Literally, I'm not even kidding you. My second thought after thinking about how much I would have liked to find the person who did that and just like kick the crap out of them yeah. was, oh man, Zipcar's making a lot of sense now. Yeah. I feel like the last few weeks we've been talking about how there's so little hassle using Zipcar to get around the city and how it can sort of replace your need for a car uh, if you're an intermittent driver like like we tend to be. And I'll tell you what I wouldn't be worried about with Zipcar is if one of my, like, one of my unstable and apparently vicious neighbors uh, decides that they don't like where we're parking and wants to spear our tires uh, with a screwdriver. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Zipcar is actually extremely convenient. I use it really, really often personally to go on sort of like any kind of trip. And you know what's never happened to me in a Zipcar is getting my tires slashed. So you can go to joinzipcar.com slash weekend and you get $25 of free driving credit with Zipcar. So maybe you should use that offer. Uh, So where do I go again for that? That's joinzipcar.com slash weekend and you get $25 of free driving credit. Alright, with that, I think it's time for us to go right into our mailbox. Our very first uh, email comes from Louis Midivane. Louis writes, Listening to the last episode about the drama surrounding Stellaris reviewing prompts me to write to you about something that's been nagging me for some time now. I have been part for many years now of self-labeled nerd or geek communities, uh, both in real life on French or English internet forums, mostly film and game related. And while that's no doubt that the hysteria surrounding reviews is the most strident with gamers, I suspect it might be in part bred from a larger state of mind that is shared among the subset of so-called nerd culture. I became more wary and disturbed when I started wondering if the infatuation for the, quote, chosen ones, unquote, narratives, didn't reflect some subconscious power fantasies, not unlike how doomsday preppers fancy themselves alpha dogs in whatever flavor of post-catastrophe they imagine, or how most video games will, by essence, revolve around the player having the most agency or being the center of their fictional world. Art and culture are magnificent things, but is it a result of putting entertainment at the center of our concerns for lack or in spite of anything else, or am I just getting old and cranky? Louis Midivane. I think Lewis is hitting on a couple of very important truths here. Uh, certainly that the, you know, the life imitates art imitates life sort of, uh, or at least the, the sort of fantasy of life imitating art, imitating life, whatever, however far down the rabbit hole you want to go with that. Um, in terms of, yeah, being so catered to, uh, you know, as sort of a, a nerd alpha dog or, or nerd whatever, um, you know, being in the center of attention and being marketed to specifically the, the male 18 to 35 kind of nerdy demographic is, is you know, kind of the where it's at right now. That's where most Hollywood budgets are going. That's where obviously uh, so much of video game marketing, um, you know, goes heavily towards um, being sold the fantasies that are supposedly speaking directly to your power fantasies. I think that does create a sense of entitlement. I think that does create kind of some shittiness too. And and I'm not saying it creates the shitty behavior because obviously uh, <laughs> humans have free will, right? We were talking about that. Uh, but 
Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that this this sort of feeds right back into itself and it makes people act shitty and entitled and that's not a great thing about our little sort of subset of culture. Uh, to whatever degree it's even a subset of culture anymore. It's so massive. It feels like nerd culture is just American pop culture yes. now. You yeah. know, Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if nothing else, is kind of proof of that. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and, and it has been for a while. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah again like nerd culture uh I, I brought it up on the show before uh but the um the the geek culture is a like capitalist conspiracy essay uh that Simon <laughs> Pegg wrote yeah. is is really pretty trenchant uh on this but I think there's there, there's a bunch of there, there's a bunch of things here like regarding Stellaris what I what I find interesting and I, I, was, I was talking about this with uh, an, another friend of mine who who designs uh, games, but you know, I, I, I was sort of asking him whether or not he sort of felt like the uh, whether or not he felt like the the space four X in particular was like the strategy game equivalent of the like the traditional like game power fantasy, and I kind yeah. of. I'm starting to think maybe it is because like around around Stellaris and around these games, I just see more aggro than I see regarding a lot of other uh, games in the strategy space. And I see a lot of recognizable behavior from like the general conversation about games, like among like hardcore gamers and, sh and shit. I, I see that same tenor a lot of times around these, these types of strategy games uh, in particular where they do sort of they, they are this pure expression of of a power fantasy where you go out and you conquer the galaxy and it's this complete like there's there's a lot of these games there's nothing to those worlds except your own aggrandizement mm -hmm. and i feel like if you're i think any one of these things is fine i think macho movies are you know like like those are all fine it, like if you're both aware and you're consuming in like limited quantities, right? But sure. uh, but I think the moment you become maybe super invested in this one type of thing, kind of uncritically, that's when you're opening the door to whatever poison it might be carrying. That's yeah. that's how that's how I think about a lot of entertainment, right? Is that like I think a lot of it has these these a lot of entertainment has sort of like poisonous messages, yes. and if you're not aware of them over time it's like the witcher right over time <laughs> uh there's just there's just a lot more and more toxicity uh in in your intellectual bloodstream they'll uh, mutate you a little bit every a, time a little bit very subtly <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and over time i i do wonder about the effects of that stuff now if you're if you're hip to it if you're if you're sort of consciously consuming the stuff uh i think i i hope to an extent that neutralizes the poison Right, like this is this is how I can tell myself that like really enjoying Way of the Gun doesn't make me a misogynist <laughs> monster, for instance. Of course, but, yeah. Uh, but I do think that geek culture has become the way, as you said, like geek culture and like pop mainstream entertainment culture in America have become like the same thing. Yeah, and. That same perspective informs games, and it's a really heavily exported product. And I 
get to thinking about have you seen that uh little snippet of an essay going around from the, from the New Yorker about uh the difference between the American office and the uh UK office uh, series? No, I have not. Uh I don't I don't remember what, I don't remember what the context was. I think it was a profile of a uh uh, of a, a a woman working in in television production and writing, uh, but the the thrust of the article was was comparing the the compromises uh, that this creator had to make bringing her work to American markets, American audiences. But the the there's this paragraph that was pretty widely accepted and, and shared around, which was that uh, to make American audiences enjoy the office. They had to completely change what the office was that in the UK, it was fundamentally a, a uh, dark kind of nihilist view of, of yeah. work, right? That the, the work is meaningless and yeah. assigning meaning to it is a joke and only sick people do that. And really what work does is it just takes, it just steals your life from you. And that's, and that's what office work is. And for American audiences, it turns into a place where like work does have meaning, people grow, people fall in love. And maybe all of that's true, but the, the trenchant, the, the important point was that American audiences needed to feel like this had a happy ending, right? That yeah. this all meant something and meant something positive. And UK audiences and in general, like European audiences for a lot of stuff like this are okay with stories that don't have happy endings or don't have any kind of affirmative message about you and what you're doing. And American audiences kind of crave that. And I think geek culture tends to have that problem, but a million times worse because it says not only is the message like not just affirmative, but it's affirmative in this way that like, yeah, as, as Louis points out, you are the most important thing in this world that you're the person who should have the power. You're the person who has the agency. Um, and I think over time, it is starting to create skewed expectations from entertainment. But yeah. I also wonder to what degree, as, as Louis does, I wonder to what degree it also influences the types of people who become really invested in this stuff. You know, is, yeah. is one reason that uh, the conversation around games tends to be so so nasty and, and so unreasonable that there's just... You, you were seeing the sum effects of 20 years of ingesting this stuff. Uh, without really thinking about what it meant. There's, yeah, and there's something I, I personally have been sort of struggling with a little bit lately, which is how much escapist entertainment is a wonderful thing, a comforting thing, something that really helps people who need it, and how much of it becomes almost a crutch for for not engaging more directly with the world around you. And, you know, it's something it, just personally, as someone who who spent a lot of time in the nonprofit world, and uh, it tries to volunteer and tries to do those kinds of things, but never feels like I'm doing enough. There, there are times where I, I really kind of sit back and examine just for myself, like how much am I doing this? How much, how much am I investing in this kind of escapist entertainment for so much of every day? Because it's something that's comforting to me. It's something that, that makes me feel better. And how much of it is because I'm, I'm becoming almost psychologically kind of reliant on it uh, to to make me feel better, to make me feel powerful, to make me feel like I'm important. And that's 
that's not an easy thing to parse. And it's kind of impossible to kind of tell where one ends and the other begins. But that's also worth, I think that's worth examining uh, for people in their sort of personal lives as well. All right. Uh, our next uh, email uh, comes from, and I apologize if I botch this name, uh, but our next email comes from Anirud. Uh, he writes, The last episode of the podcast got me thinking, would the blowback to Rowan Kaiser's Stellaris review be as hot if, hypothetically speaking, he had written the same review for another website since IGN has a reputation of assigning scores to games in the higher end of the spectrum? Uh, do you guys think publications have a certain ethos and automatic thoughts associated with them? Or am I just crazy and putting things in boxes? I don't think that he's wrong. No, he's not crazy at all. <laughs> I don't totally think he's right. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some publications are kind of known for being more enthusiasts. Some publications are known for being more analytical, you know, so on and so forth. So I don't think... He's wrong at all. IGN is also so massive. Their readership is, you know, the kind of numbers we dream about at a smaller website. No. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be more people in a more general audience and sort of a larger whenever you get a larger audience, you'll get that larger proportion of the tiny vocal minority who are always vocal and very loud. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're spot on. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I think. I was intrigued by how many people were bringing up direct comparisons to, like, the scores that Blockbuster, like, AAA games get. Yeah. And how that was sort of used as a cudgel against uh, Rowan's Stellaris review. And uh, there were a lot of people saying that, like, scores should be consistent across an outlet, which is just not remotely practicable, yeah. uh, given, <laughs> uh, given like, the, the, size, the size of a site like IGN. And and how they have to operate, and I was I was sort of sorry to see people who I think should know better, uh, sort of adopting that tone, right? Mm. That like somehow Rowan's score had been wrong, uh, despite his criti his critique being completely valid and not and and kind of uh, difficult to refute. But I think you do have problems when. I'm not the only, like, I don't think people are wrong when they feel like, in general, across mainstream game sites, really big games from well-regarded publishers and developers tend to do really, really well. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily part of a conspiracy or anything like that, but uh, I think the pro the the processes around game like niche games like strategy games versus the stuff that goes on around major uh, releases is so different that the review process ends up looking really different and the context for those reviews ends up looking really different. Guys like me and Rowan in general aren't allowed anywhere near uh, major <laughs> major releases. Sure, um, that is always the prerogative of people on staff at major sites and they tend to review uh, the really, really big games. Uh, whether or not you think that's a, a wise or healthy approach is, is another matter, but you, you like, it's a different set of critics. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, like, like people yes. on my career track or, or, or Rowan's like, we're not managing people. We're not managing sections. Reviews aren't something that we sort of parachute into and parachute out of in between our, our regular day jobs. Like, it's a different context because we're churning through this stuff a lot. 
and yeah. and our context is a little different and and maybe it also makes you a little crankier right <laughs> sure. that that you're you're short of on this grind uh but but then i the, then there's the other element of uh there's a lot of expectation shaping and management i feel that goes on around major releases that i i think tends to sow the ground uh pretty effectively like not, not necessarily the, not i'm not saying like the scores are compromised in any way but i, I think the way i put it is this uh, a lot of a lot of games that like freelancers review and stuff haven't been so heavily messaged that yes. you have this framework for interpreting every single thing you see in the game right it's it, you can't you're not you're not matching your experience up against what you've been told for months to expect you're just sort of approaching it kind of naively I feel like a lot of major releases have had so much of that messaging done and have been broken down so effectively as like a series of features. And by the time a reviewer is sitting with it, uh, one way or another, that game is being interpreted kind of by on its own terms, maybe more so than other games would get. Yeah. And I, that is just, that is, that is my theory. And I think, I think big sites are a little more prone to it. Uh, just because of the various ways they can operate, whereas like a place like Rock Paper Shotgun has no scores, uh, tends to prize a lot more like personal reactions to games. And yeah, and by the way, AAA games tend to be really well made. They just they just do. And yeah. we talked for a million reasons why you know review review like the way reviews work in this industry in general don't comprehend really well made but fundamentally meaningless games very well yes. like if you look at the rubrics for how scores are assigned like basically basically <laughs> like unless shit is hardcore broken you're starting to get into the 60 and up range and that also sort of skews things so i think there's there's a whole bunch of things uh that that make something like an ign review be interpreted differently and what a negative review like it sort of seemed like people are like IGN didn't play ball with Stellaris and they play ball with all these other AAA games. That's unfair. And right. I think there's, uh, I think the misunderstanding there is there's a fundamentally different game being played in those scenarios. Could not have said that better. I think you nailed it. As somebody who used to work exclusively in a review department in a bigger site, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is Idle Weekend, where Rob increasingly doesn't care if he ever gets hired again. <laughs> hey, you know, you come to our podcast for the hard truth and Witcher 3 chat, so it's all good. <laughs> the hard truth, like Far Cry 4 is garbage game for garbage people. <laughs> oh my god. And I'll just remember the time I, I 360 no-scoped an eagle when I was high playing Far Cry 4, and it was a beautiful moment. All right, anyway. I think we'll, we'll skip this next email because this is another Stellaris email, and I think we've, we, we've hit that pretty hard. Sounds good. Our next email comes Oh, shit. From... It's another review question. It's another review question. No, we'll, kick that, we'll kick that down. Okay, we'll, we'll that sounds that good. We'll kick that down for another week. Our next email. Let's see. Next email comes from Martin from... Do you know how to pronounce Uppsala? Uppsala? I think you just did. Uppsala. Okay. Uppsala. We're going to say it's Uppsala. Yeah. Okay. Martin writes... I'm writing this in regard to one of the mails last week where you discussed the sexualization of the female characters in Street Fighter V. Just like you guys and the listener who wrote the mail, I can be turned uh, off of uh, how women are treated in some games. However, in Street Fighter, it does not bother me. 
The reason is not just the female characters, but most of the time the male ones are clearly sexualized as well. Good example is Vega, with his shirt unbuttoned to the lowest button to show as much of his pecs as possible. Since the art design is the same for all the characters, the skimpy female suits and disproportional body parts do not bother me. Same logic can be applied to the playable characters in a game like Dragon's Crown, where the sorceress has bigger breasts than her head, but the dwarf is 90% over muscular chest. In that game, like Danielle mentioned, the NPCs are a completely different story. Do you agree that sexualization or sexualizing everyone validates more untasteful uh, or distasteful portrayal of characters? Why do you think sexualization of males in games slips by public scrutiny? Maybe because the misogyny is such an outspread problem and the reverse is not really talked about. So, okay, so we're, we're talking about a couple of things here, it seems like. Uh, but, you know, certainly, certainly the sort of idea of equal time, right, in, in something like Street Fighter, where the men are just as sort of ridiculous, you know, so my my only issue with this, and again, I you know I've said this before, I I do not claim to represent all intersexual uh, intersectional feminists, but personally, for me, when a character has agency and is playable, it does not bother me. A woman character is playable and has agency and kicks ass. It does not bother me as much as when you know there's no agency there and the woman is just sort of a plaything or an object. Um, the only place where that does get a little bit thorny or tricky is sort of the way men are sexualized versus the way women are mm-hmm. sexualized. You know, yep. the woman being sexualized as, you know, object. She's just hot. She's just like a hot object to be fucked or I fucked or however you want to put it versus a man's sexuality is usually portrayed in like a very powerful way. Like he's he's the man, you know, he's he's the guy with the agency. He gets to do the fucking. So it's kind of that. That's the, that's the place where it does get a little tricky, even even within my my sort of general statement about like it it usually doesn't bug me when a woman is in a skimpy outfit if she's super fucking badass. Like it, it can still bother me to some degree, you know, certainly where if it's just sort of like okay, it's a little gross. You're you're supposed to just want to fuck her instead of play as her and feel empowered by that, you know, sort of versus the opposite. Um, but. Again, my personal opinion <laughs> has to be, you know, that, uh, yeah, it, it all depends on the context and it all depends on sort of that, uh, that way. Like equal time has to actually kind of be equal time, not just, okay, he's, he's a hot guy and it's a hot girl. Like it, it has to do with sort of the way the sexualization happens. Yeah. Um, I think the whole like men are sexualized to argument I think that's an important point that that you brought up, and, and I think it can't be stressed enough. When there's a sexualized male character in something, usually that sexualization is in a way that's still fundamentally also there for men to read themselves into. Yes. That the men, like, that in, in, in a nutshell, the way to put it is, like, they are sort of worlds where, like, your sort of your sort of imagined male audience uh, can imagine like getting with every girl and being every guy. Yeah, and that's and and that's the thing, right? So like, and I'm not sure, and I, I'm not sure it works both ways. I think like I'm not sure a lot of like highly sexualized female characters are they aren't necessarily there. And I, I, like you can probably speak to this more as more as a woman, but like <laughs> I'm not. They're not. I'm not sure they're meant there for women to be able to read themselves into those characters. And like, yeah, that's that's how I want to. That's how I see myself. That's how I want to be. Uh, whereas I think like like you know ripped dudes uh, looking <laughs> hot and badass. 
is still fundamentally something guys can totally get behind, right? Because then it's like, well, you're that guy. You're 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 him in the story. That's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's God. That's so incredibly important. The the sort of uh, you know imagined point of view of of your average player, which is typically going to be again the eighteen to thirty five year old uh, heterosexual male, you know. Um, there's also, you know, the part of this that I always have to kind of clarify is that I also am bisexual and I'm attracted to women. And so there's always sort of a complication, you know, people, male friends of mine at many times in my life have been like, let's go to a strip club, like be my bro. And like, and I've always been kind of like, okay, like I, I get it. I get the appeal. But I also kind of, it's not really my scene. Like, I also, you know, I don't want to stigmatize, like, you're a stripper, you do you. That's all cool. I'm all good with sex workers. I totally support everybody's thing in life. But that's not really where I go to be excited. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really my thing. I also acknowledge that some gay women, that totally is their thing. Uh, So... (laughs) There's always there's a lot of layers of this for me always, you know, when whenever a woman character is sexualized and like, yeah, there are times I do find, you know, certain characters in movies or games to be like totally hot. And I'm just like, wow, she's really hot. I can totally, you know, engage with that level of the fantasy being like I can be her or I can think she's hot. I can kind of do both. And that's a weird but kind of awesome thing sometimes. And the last thing that I'll say is that. There are genres of entertainment that do sexualize men in in more the way that women are traditionally sexualized. And I <laughs> there's a term for it, but it's it's like boys life manga. Like it's it's something oh, that a oh, no. good friend of mine is oh, no. super We're into. We're not doing this. We're not I, doing this. I'm just saying, if you want to see something where it's like men are sexualized kind of more the way women tend to be, it's like the men are there for the woman's point of view. They are there for the, you know, for the female audience completely or the, you know, presumed female audience, the, you know, people who prefer men basically so that anybody who prefers men, you know, it's like the wispy hair, pretty boys with the, with the open shirts and all that kind of stuff. They're not necessarily in positions of like super power you know they're not there like i'm gonna fuck all the girls it's more like oh look at these two beautiful boys kissing each other so it does exist it's just almost completely absent in our culture so (laughs) it's kind of like if you really want to see equal time go read some of that and and (laughs) it'll open your eyes my friends Google search Amanda Cosmos for a, exactly. for a helpful starter kit <laughs> in, discovering, like, <laughs> in, 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 in discovering the sexualized gaze of, of, of boys. I was thinking of her Twitter timeline, this entire description. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, to, to Martin's point, though, I, I do think, like, you know, that equal time point is also important. Like, I think Dragon's Crown probably would have would have gotten away for, gotten away with it if yeah. those NPCs hadn't been the tell. Right, I like agree. the, the NBC, yeah. like I didn't understand the issue because, like, to me, I did see the art was the same for both genders. Yeah, and until you told me, like, no, 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 dude, like the NPCs, like that's where you start to see the perspective of this game. Yeah, and, and where you can touch them, hands. and it's super gross, and yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, so. I don't, I don't think it gets. I don't think it gets the same scrutiny just because, uh, like, it, you know, fundamentally, like, you know, guys, guys like seeing themselves that way too. Yeah. Um, and I don't like. I, I think if I think if you check out some of the stuff that Danielle was just talking about, 
um, you would discover like points of view on on male characters that maybe you would not necessarily enjoy <laughs> as much. Uh, maybe that feeling of of alienation and weirdness would provide a bit of insight exactly. uh, into some of the issues people have with sexualized uh, female characters, because uh, certainly. <laughs> Certainly, I am sometimes a bit appalled by some of that stuff. <laughs> Let Amanda guide you, my friend. No, no, uh, no, do not, do not, do not do that. Um, <laughs> uh, oh awesome. god, we've we've almost filled this podcast. Uh, we should probably start winding it down. Uh, it sounds unless you, really unless good. Unless you want to do the next. Uh, Okay, no, we got one more. I, okay. We got one more. I want to get more. <laughs> want to get into uh, just this <laughs> dumb movie recently. <laughs> uh, this good. one comes from Calix. I was surprised to hear Danielle's disappointment in Agent Forty Seven, but perhaps my read of the film will help. It's a speed run from a live marathon. Wow! From the beginning of the film, Agent Forty Seven is saving frames, using exploits, and optimizing all over the place. <laughs> he skips the early auto scroller completely, having already arrived where the target is going. He is then faced with the escort mission in the warehouse with the turbine, surely a source of much frustration during a casual <laughs> run, and he immediately gets caught and kills everybody, despite the fact that it's clearly not the intended path. <laughs> At the end of the film, there's the hilarious elevator scene, which is also skippable, but it saves hardly any time, and everyone loves it, so just let it play. <laughs> but immediately after, he damage boosts through the final boss encounter, immediately triggering the final cutscene. Not a new record, but a respectable time for a marathon run. <laughs> During the credits, they go back and show a glitch where you can see the cut, th the cut third form of the Nemesis character. I can practically hear the couch commentary from here. Oh, man. You know, this perspective would make for a much better movie. I would, if I actually could sit there with speedrunners and they actually legitimately straight faced went through the whole thing with that sort of perspective, I could enjoy that movie a lot more. <laughs> so I just re realized Agent Forty Seven is the new one, right? That's yeah, from like a year ago ish, okay, yeah. maybe. See, yeah. For a minute, I thought because I did not know that the original Hitman movie was a Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, movie. I was going to say it's a. Uh, Quite, quite a, quite a choice for his career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of this, and then I discovered that it was a Tim the Olfant movie, and I was like, "Well, I'm in." Yep. And what's amazing is that it's Timothy Olfant as Agent Forty Seven. Yeah. Like you can only like Timothy Olfant will only act so much in a given role before eventually the Olfantness of it just starts to come back out, right? So like it's so weird. Like Agent Forty Seven is this like antiseptic, emotionless, like killbot character, but in the end, like he still can't help but like swagger and draw through the movie a little bit. And yep. it's like, yeah, I don't think I don't think the uh, conditioning took Tim. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the brainwashing is really sticking. <laughs> yeah awesome so i think it's time for us to move into our weekend projects after a word from our sponsors this episode is also sponsored by listener andrew mccray who just wants to support the show because he appreciates diverse ideas and wants to hear what we have to say he also bought this ad because he's a public radio listener, and apparently giving money to his favorite shows is just instinct at this point. <laughs> uh, well, Andrew, thanks so much for your support and your kind words. We both appreciate it tremendously. Yes, thank you very much, Andrew. And if you would also like us to read a message on the show or just want to buy a mention as a gesture, you can do so at store.idlethumbs.net 
slash products slash mentions. All right, Rob, what are you watching, listening to, reading that is just absolutely setting your brain free? And I it's guess, not the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> no, no, it is not. No, it is not. Well, as we learned in the, the Adjustment Bureau, are, we, are any of us really ever free? Oh, the answer is point. yes, but only good if point. we love hard enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, no. So I guess what I'm into right now, uh, since we just brought up Timothy Oliphant, or I did. Yes. Um, I am watching the second season of Justified again. Oh, and uh, boy, I hope I haven't brought this up on the show before. I might have. I might. I might bring bringing this up again. I really hope not. The point <laughs> is, okay. though, if I'm bringing it up again, everyone needs to get with the show. It's it's on Netflix in uh, Netflix Instant. Uh, it's it's free if you've got Prime. I'm watching the second season. And uh, it's. Did you ever get into the show, uh, Danielle? I, I have not. I, although oh, it is on my short list, I will say that. So the second season is dominated by Margot Martindale's uh, oh, performance as this uh, the the head the the matriarch of this Harlan County crime family. I'm already interested, and it's actually yeah. the it, it's actually the role I think that kind of like made her career uh, uh-huh. because I don't think she was like I feel like she was kind of just a like character actress who who wasn't doing a whole lot Mm -hmm. uh like it hadn't really like gotten to show her chops right and so this is why she pops up in the americans as like a really key figure as well because like she shows up in in the second season of justified and completely dominates it and the second season of justified is like it's one of those great seasons of television right it's like as you're watching it you know you're like sort of seeing the perfect form of a show like the americans every minute like like every minute of the americans (laughs) uh like like certain seasons of the wire yeah um it's just it's just that good and i think what i'm really the the things i'm really enjoying about the second season of justified is it's sort of the perfect expression of of the game of the, of the show's themes uh one of which is the second season really explores the question of like to what degree can people actually change themselves and to what degree is change made difficult or impossible uh by circumstance as opposed to just your own internal character and over the course of the season uh that theme is explored through the two main characters, Timothy Oliphant's Raylan Givens and uh, his sort of uh, hillbilly uh, arch criminal rival uh, Boyd, Boyd Crowder uh, played by Walton Goggins mm. uh, who many people remember as uh, the Southern guy from uh, the shield. Um, oh, sure. Sure. So he yeah. was, yeah, he was, he was sort of the sidekick to Vic Mackey in uh, the shield and I'm watching the second season and it's just, such a perfect season television uh and I, I'm, I'm approaching the end and there are so many just like magical moments where like performance and direction and cinematography combine to create these like indelible moments uh, that that sort of are are haunting as, as you think about these images and these exchanges and what they imply for the characters and what their ultimate fates are going to be uh, so it's it's something I am just I am so back into you know I don't I sort of wondered whether Justified was a was a truly great show or whether it was also kind of flattering junk food right because <laughs> fundamentally that show is also about like Timothy Oliphant just sort of swaggering through and just doing a lot of cool stuff and being a badass and everything working out uh, but going back to it through this 
through going going back through the series, especially now knowing how it all played out and how it all turned out, uh, is only deepening my appreciation for how complicated and nuanced that show really was, almost from the word go. Uh, and I am just in love with it all over again, and I want more people to get into it. Nice. Wow. That God, when things come together like that, it is it is like magic. That's yeah. That's awesome. Um, for myself, I will just very incredibly briefly mention one thing, and then I will actually talk about another thing. The first thing being Super Hypercube in in uh, VR. It is the first VR game that I've actually kind of thought, okay, I like this. I could actually play this. I was at the Idle Thumbs office actually a couple days ago, and they had uh, you know PlayStation VR headsets, and uh, Jake put it on my face and I played it and it is, you know, it's like a weird eighties looking 3d Tetris. That is also sort of like the uh, Japanese game show where giant Tetris shaped walls come towards a human being. And you have to make yourself into the shape of the wall. Only you are the block and you're actually manipulating the block in, in 3d. Uh, really rad, really cool. I am excited for that. If not anything else on VR ever, and now for my actual endorsement, I just finished uh, all week when I was I was in San Francisco this week and all week and the week before, actually, I was watching Lady Dynamite, which is uh, the Maria. It's a new Netflix series, relatively new, I believe, um, starring Maria Bamford, who is a comedian who had uh, sort of come to some success as a, in real life as as the Target spokesperson. Like she was in all these sort of manic commercials for Target had a real-life mental breakdown. She suffers from uh, various forms of mental illness. Went back to Duluth, Minnesota to live with her uh, parents for a while and then went back to L.A. and, and sort of started her career over. Uh, it's a very weird and wonderful and just positively bananas show that is sort of like one part BoJack Horseman, uh, two parts just utter bananas, ridiculousness, uh, Arrested Development-style kind of humor. And uh, one part... Like a very heartfelt and very real and very funny exploration of what it's like to live with mental illness. Um, and those things don't all sound like they would necessarily go well together. And the first episode is a little uneven. They break the fourth wall maybe a little too much for for my taste. But as the show goes on, I I felt positively in love with it. I think it's it's very funny and sharply written. Maria's character, who is Maria, you know, she she's playing herself. She's playing sort of an exaggerated version of herself um, is so endearing and lovable. And you just root for her no matter what's going on in her life, because she's this really nice Midwestern lady who has uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and really severe anxiety and also bipolar, too. And she's struggling so hard to make it as, you know, an actress and a comedian in L.A. Uh, with all of these things and with her very sort of mild-mannered, very polite, sort of Midwestern, uh, you know, manners and mannerisms and personality. And uh, each episode of the show kind of goes through, it's it's kind of cool what they do narratively. Every episode of the show goes, uh, there's a segment in sort of the present when she's back in L.A. kind of trying to make it. Uh, a, a section in the past when she's very incredibly successful but struggling so hard with her mental illness that she's kind of going towards this breakdown, and a segment in Duluth when she was actually with her family, sort of recovering uh, from her episode and, and sort of building her strength back. I not only have been watching this show and, and loving it, but uh, 
I also got really into, she had a little YouTube series during the time she was actually in real life in Duluth. Her, mm-hmm. She had like a little one woman show that she called the Maria Bamford show. And it was just herself and her pug doing like caricatures of all the people in her life, her parents and her friends. And it's just, it's really hilarious and really endearing. Um, and man, I just, I had no idea that this person existed before, you know, I watched this, this Netflix series and now I'm like, I love her and I want to support her in every way. And, you know, it's become kind of a, a a thing to say about her that like, she really has helped destigmatize mental illness and like, you know, really kind of in a very funny, very approachable way, talked honestly about it. And I know it sounds like a cheesy thing, but I truly appreciate that. And there are actually things that she discusses on the show that have made me feel like a tiny bit better about myself suffering from anxiety and trying to, you know, be successful and, and whatever and what have you. Not in Hollywood, because I'd be eaten alive, <laughs> kind of like she was, you know, when, and yeah. she's very honest about that. Um, but yeah, just, man, hell of a show. I, I plan on actually watching it again to kind of get every little detail uh, and wow. it, it rips Target apart. Oh, my God. It rips Wait, Target what? a new one. <laughs> it's hilarious. It is like, so in the show, in the sh- fictional show, they call it Checklist. But it's yeah. every little thing about sort of the old commercials she used to be in. Every little thing about like Target's, ba- you know, w- you know, kind of hiring, you know, foreign workers for cheap. It Just everything about it. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Target would like, just, I don't know, try to assassinate her or something. It's just like completely ripping them a new asshole and it's fantastic. Right, so I need, to ch- I need to check this out. This sounds, this sounds fantastic. Yeah. Very highly recommended. So it's all on Netflix right now. It's all on Netflix. Yeah. The whole series. Um, cool. Definitely this, the sense of humor of it. Uh, you know, it is like a hundred percent bananas. Like there are talking dogs and, and musical numbers and ridiculous, ridiculous shit that goes on. But I kind of like that. I like the campiness of it. I know that's not everybody's sort of first uh, taste. So if you if you are kind of turned off by something that is like turned up to 11 bananas, her little YouTube series, The Maria Bamford Show, is also well, well worth your time. There's 20 episodes of it. They're all pretty short. You can watch it in, you know, an evening. Uh, that's also really worth watching for like just a lo-fi, cute little kind of one-woman comedy show. So yeah, she's rad. It's a rad show. Man, I can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you are enjoying the show, please do tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a frenemy, tell all the people in your life all about it. It helps us out so, so much. Word of mouth is really kind of how we get along in the world, and we super, super appreciate it. Also, if you have a moment to go ahead and rate us on iTunes, that also helps us out a whole bunch. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. I can't believe somebody slashed my tongue. That's insane. That is... Seriously. I... Like, what a fucking psycho. Like, who does that shit? Call fucking Margot Martindale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't take that crap. No, she would not. Yeah. <laughs>